Hey friend, I'm Aristasia. Welcome to Passion and Potential Podcast. I'm a creative business owner that followed my heart, learned some things the hard way, and created a passionate career for myself. At 22 years old, I quit my marketing job to start my business in a new city with no friends, no experience, and a whole lot of emotional baggage. I'm using the lessons I've learned in life and business to inspire you to embrace your passions, discover your full potential, and chase your dreams in life. Now, let's get on with the episode. For today's episode, I have Jessica Rabin with Psych Talk Podcast. She's a clinical psychologist, a mom, and a wife, and she has a deep passion for normalizing mental health and making an impact on even just one person through her social media and her podcast. Jessica, thank you so much for being here and chatting with me. I'm super excited to talk all the mental health things with you today and just maybe give some of my listeners some really beautiful insight, especially around mental health. Um, I would love if you would just go ahead and introduce yourself, let us know who you are, what you love and what you love to do in life. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I think you did a beautiful introduction. Um, But like you said, I'm Jessica or Jess. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in South Carolina, and I work in a children's hospital actually doing inpatient and outpatient. Um, I am a mom to a one-year-old daughter. So still adjusting to to mom life. Um, And I host my own podcast all about psychology, mental health, self-growth. And I'm really passionate about normalizing mental health, both just shattering the stigma around it, talking about it. And one thing I've really gotten into is normalizing that therapists are human too. And like, we have our own mental health struggles because I think a lot of people, especially like in the old kind of concept of a therapist. Think of like this old white man sitting across from you laying on a couch (laughs) and like a blank slate and you know nothing about this person, but like we're humans just like everybody else. So that's something I've been really passionate about talking about. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of things I'm passionate about within the mental health realm um, and outside of it as well. But mental health is like my main passion. (laughs) So I'm curious, um, do you, so you first started showing people your passion for mental health through social media, right? And TikTok aside from being a psychologist, right? So I, oh, okay. (laughs) So my story (laughs) is long. So I, when I was in college, I actually like started getting into social media. I was a psychology major. I switched to psychology my junior year, but like I dabbled in YouTube. I had like a Tumblr, if anybody remembers Tumblr, (laughs) um, where I talked about, um, mental health and things like that. And then I went to graduate school and I was still doing a little bit or like I would post things on Facebook. Um, and so I think I was always like normalizing mental health on social media, just kind of as a hobby. Um, but the like actual intent of making mental health content on TikTok and Instagram came after I was a psychologist. So I became independently licensed in 2019 and I started actively posting on social media in 2020 um, with the intent of spreading mental health awareness. But really I've been doing it since like social media was a thing other than maybe like MySpace. <laughs> oh boy, we're not going back to that dinosaur age. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So you mentioned that you also want to try and change the stigma of like therapists are also people too. What does that look like for you in terms of like, where does that line get drawn? Because, all right. So for me personally, podcast photography, I've put a lot of like personal branding in my social media accounts. Like I'm very involved. People pretty much know everything about me. (laughs) What does that look like for you as a therapist? Cause I haven't seen that much. Like I don't know much about therapists lives Mm -hmm. on the outside of our sessions. Is that a boundary thing? How does that work? So it's actually really interesting because there is not a lot in like our ethics code about how therapists can use social media, but there is recently like this push that social media can be a great way to reach individuals that may not be able to access therapy. Mm -hmm. However, you do need to kind of 
find that balance. So really what guides me is whenever I post something on social media, I have the thought that any one of my patients or because I work with children, my patients' parents (laughs) can find this. And is this something I would not mind my patients finding out about me? So like I make a lot of like TikToks or um, Instagram posts about having anxiety. That is something I do not care if my patients know. And I think um, I, relatable too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it almost helps. <laughs> oh, definitely. I yeah. still remember the first time when I was in graduate school and I had a supervisor that was like, okay, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you have anxiety? And I was like, well, yes. Like it's very obvious. <laughs> Why are you? <laughs> and he was like, you should tell your client that who was struggling with anxiety. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, like that's going to help her. Like, obviously don't self-disclose too much, but it makes you relatable. And that was the first time I was ever like given permission. And obviously like in the therapy setting, it's different because the focus is on the client. You do not want to overtake the session, but on social media, there aren't those boundaries. So I really like go by the guiding principle that anybody can find when I'm posting on social media. So knowing that, is this something that I would not care my clients or their parents know? And also then is it like ethical (laughs) too? like, am I putting out accurate information or is how am I being perceived? But that's kind of what I use to guide since we don't have any strict guidelines currently. I love that though. I always say like vulnerability is key and Mm -hmm. And what, first of all, like therapy is already such a vulnerable situation. Like you're literally spilling your heart and your feelings to this person. So yeah, just like that slightest bit of, yeah, I also have anxiety too. It's like, okay, we really, I get it. (laughs) Yep. Oh yeah. I remember a while ago I had a patient ask me and I say patient because I work in a hospital, but I know other people like to say client. Um, And so I'll kind of go back and forth between the two. Look at me and just said, have you ever dealt with anxiety too? And I just looked at her and I was like, yes, of course. she was took a deep breath. Really? Yeah. And like, that was all she needed to then feel more comfortable. And I do think it is relatable because honestly, I don't know a single mental health professional that hasn't gone into the field because of something mental health related they've experienced. I was just going to ask you. So if we were to back it up a little bit, was there something, was it your, your anxiety? What was it that initially pushed you into this? Um, interest or this passion for psychology and to become a therapist? So retrospectively, (laughs) I've always been really anxious. I definitely struggled with depression in high school and saw a therapist for that. Um, But despite that, I thought I was going to go to pharmacy school at age 12. I made this great plan. I I was going to be a chemistry major and go to pharmacy school because, you know, at 12, you totally have your life (laughs) planned out. (laughs) Um, And then when I was 18, so I was a freshman in college, my cousin actually died by suicide. And that to this day, other than maybe now the birth of my daughter has been the most impactful thing of my life. And so after he died, I started volunteering for a crisis hotline and working on like a suicide hotline. And I was still a chemistry major. I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to pharmacy school. Um, And I realized that one, I did not like chemistry (laughs) anymore. It was not coming easy to me. And I took a psychology class my sophomore year of college, just as like a what general requirement class. And I loved it. And I was like, why am I not doing this? Um, And so that's really what kind of catapulted me into becoming a psychologist. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I went to a terminal master's program after, um, my bachelor's and terminal master's just means like there was no doctorate attached and then pursued my doctorate, um, later, but really, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that. I thought I wanted to do research. I thought I wanted to be a professor and then I started doing clinical work and I loved it. And so now I do know research or teaching (laughs) and do full-time clinical work. Oh, cool. So you just had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. All right. So you mentioned that you work at a children's hospital, correct? So So you are a therapist to what ages? 
So (laughs) on, so I have two roles. So on the outpatient side, I work in our adolescent medicine clinic. So we see 10 to 24. I primarily see 12 to 19 there on the inpatient side, since it's a children's hospital, I literally could see anywhere from zero to 18. Obviously I'm not actually doing therapy with babies. So I usually don't see babies. Sometimes I'll get consulted for like parental support if their child is like hospitalized for a chronic illness or some type of trauma. Um, But on the inpatient side, I would say the youngest I really start seeing is closer to like probably seven, eight, but I definitely see younger as well. Do you see any similarities or even differences? So like, let's say the differences in generations, you're working with seven to 19. Now, I don't even know what that is. That's not Gen Z. That's something else. (laughs) I don't know what's below Gen Z. But I will say um, we're, so yes, there's still a stigma around therapy, mental health. Like we're still learning that it's okay to have feelings and to struggle with mental health. And I would say in our generation, that is very much so. Okay, we're learning it. It's okay. Are you noticing a change in the younger generation where because it maybe it's a little bit more accepted that they are developing like better coping mechanisms or or would you say it's just all the above? Like we're all just kind of in the same boat. <laughs> so honestly, like that's such a loaded question. So I would definitely say Gen Z and like, I agree with you. I have no idea what's after Gen Z, but like primarily I work with teenagers. So we'll Gen Zers, I would say there's significantly less stigma around mental health. And they're more likely to seek out mental health services pending their guardian allows them to, um, or seek out support online. So I think that is definitely great because they can find those coping skills online, um, things like that on the opposite side, since there isn't such a stigma and information is so accessible to everyone nowadays, we know there's also bad information. So on the other hand, I also see people like self-diagnosing or reading things online that aren't really accurate and like say, oh, that's me. And it's like a made up diagnosis or like something that's unhelpful, um, which can be a risk. But I definitely think the younger generation is breaking the stigma a lot more around therapy and mental health, which I love seeing. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'll be like somehow get sucked into a TikTok algorithm where it's like, you have this. And I'm like, I don't have that. How am I seeing all these videos? And it's like, no, you do. And I'm like, do I? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like what? Oh no. It's like, I have seen a rise in a handful of different disorders, but like teens coming to therapy to be like, I think I have this because I saw a TikTok about this. And like, I've talked to some of the psychiatrists I work with. I'm like, are you seeing this? And they're like, yes, it's social media, which can be great because not everyone can access therapy. I wish therapy was more accessible. I know I told you I was listening to your episode with Georgia and she made the comment about mental health care being free. <laughs> and I was like, said that I think my jaw hit the floor. I was like, what? <laughs> you have free? Uh, I know. Um, so I know it's not accessible. So I do think there's really good information online. And that's one, another reason like me and other licensed professionals do want to make mental health content. And at the same time, just with anything like there can be bad information. Yeah. You're going to cherry pick and find the good and the bad, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So why don't you share with me some of the topics within mental health or within your therapy sessions? Maybe those go hand in hand, but that you feel super passionate about. So there are so many. So all of my research in graduate school was on suicide. Um, which is probably obvious since I shared my story as to why. Um, so when I was in graduate school, my um, dissertation and a bunch of research projects, I have research papers published and a book published on suicide. So that is definitely a big passion of mine and like reducing the stigma about suicide. Um, as for other topics, I mean, I struggle with anxiety, so I'm very passionate about talking about anxiety. Um And I also struggled with postpartum anxiety. So that was kind of something I talked about a lot after I had my daughter. Um, 
I work with depression a lot. I work with eating disorders a lot. And that's been interesting for me because I've been very passionate about like health and like exercise for years. Um, that was my go-to coping skill in graduate school. And now working with eating disorders and kind of seeing how like exercise can become disordered and like reflecting on my own journey and looking back and being like, Oh, there were definitely times that I thought I was being healthy, but it's not, um, that's something I'm really passionate about. And within that realm, like anti-diet culture, all that kind of stuff. Um, and away from like clinical diagnoses, I really love like self-compassion and values work. I do that a lot in my sessions, especially working in a children's hospital when I have a lot of kids that have like chronic illness or new medical diagnoses, they need to learn a lot of self-compassion. And also I do a lot of values work because their lives are changing significantly. And if we can focus on what do you value in life and how can you, you still incorporate those values in your life, despite the diagnosis that can be really helpful for them. So that was a lot. <laughs> I love that. Those are all the things that I love and passionately could rant about as well. Now, awesome. I have a very different perspective. I'm obviously not a therapist or psychologist. I just find it very intriguing. And I, mental health is something that I think that before I got a grip on it, I didn't realize how much it impacts everything. Everything. Like your friendships, your relationships, your career, just everything. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I was drowning. Like, no yeah. wonder I was struggling. I had mm -hmm. no grip. I know. It's it's amazing. And I always say, especially working in a hospital, but in general, like, and mental health and physical health are so intertwined. And like, we talk so much about physical health, yet there's like this huge stigma with mental health. And it's like, we all have mental health. Some of us just have better mental health than others, but we all have mental health, just like we all have physical health. So where do you think... I? I know so many people that struggle with anxiety. Some people it's, you know, they go into full blown panic and, and anxiety attacks. Sometimes it's just that little rain cloud over your head where you just have that feeling all the time. What does this stem from? Like, why do we all have so much freaking anxiety? That <laughs> is a no loaded answer to that, but <laughs> I'm just curious, like, is there something that people are constantly bringing up or is it just, I mean, life is freaking hard. So, I mean, there's definitely like, you know, the genetics. Mm -hmm. So if you have anxiety in your family um, recently, a lot I've been seeing is the pandemic oh, because yes. we've been in it for so long um, because I primarily work with like teens, um, a lot of school and social situations can stem from a lot of anxiety or cause a lot of anxiety. Um, like bullying, things like that. I think just broadly speaking to our culture, like as in the United States culture of like work, 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 hustle, like get everything done, be the best to X, Y, Z. It's like, we don't have time to breathe. Mm. And then if we're like going, 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 and then we're comparing ourselves to X, Y, or Z person, or we've overloaded ourselves with 17,000 things, we get really anxious because we can't complete those things um, or we're constantly comparing um, ourselves to other. And then there's things like you mentioned panic attacks. Um, there are specific things that can trigger anxiety. Like if you've had some type of traumatic situation or scary situation, then you're put in that situation again later, your anxiety is going to spike as well. Okay. So let's say it's somebody who's experiencing everyday anxiety. It's not trauma induced or at least maybe not like deep, deep, deep trauma induced, but yeah. everyday anxiety, the pressures of the world, society, comparison, self-worth, what would step one be for like, okay, I've got to get this anxiety under control. Talk to someone. <laughs> yeah, well, so go to therapy. No. Yeah. So honest, honestly, the first thing I tell people is like self-awareness. Mm -hmm. You have to recognize that it's anxiety because I think so many people go through life, like knowing that they feel a certain way, but don't know what it is. And then they talk to somebody else who maybe say has had a therapist or whatever. And they're like, oh yeah, that's anxiety. And they're like, wait, is that what I'm experiencing? So definitely self-awareness. Um, and then I think 
a big thing is figuring out how does anxiety present for you? So like for a lot of people, it is racing thoughts, like their mind just does not shut off. And so if that's how your anxiety prevents, like learn or presents learning skills to either distract yourself from those thoughts or challenge your anxiety thoughts, journaling, things like that. If the anxiety presents as more physical, so like the increased heart rate, you can't breathe, stomach aches, headaches, things like that, doing what we call grounding techniques. So things to calm your body. So deep breathing or present moment awareness to just relax yourself because the thing about anxiety and working in a hospital, especially with individuals who have chronic illness, I talk about like the anxiety pain cycle a lot. If our stomach hurts because we're anxious or our hearts racing because we're anxious. And then we get anxious because there's something physically wrong with us. It makes it hurt even worse and makes our heart. (laughs) And it keeps going over and over and over again. Um, So kind of first being aware that you have anxiety next, identifying how anxiety presents for you. And then third would be to do strategies to address however it presents for you. You know, I was 28 years old. The first time I ever heard the term grounding technique. Really? I, I was so confused. I, I like told my therapist, I was like, I just like, I think I'm like feeling panicky. I start breathing really heavy. And she's like, Anastasia, we've got to work on you grounding yourself. I was like, what does that mean? And she's like, I want you to touch something. I want you yep. to and I was like, what? And then I tried and I was like, this is life changing. I was literally 28 years old. Were you doing like the five, four, three, two, three, yeah. two, one? Yep. Yeah. I'd never heard of that. And and that really made me, I think that was when I kind of like stumbled into my, uh, uh, I'll say obsession, my obsession with like understanding my mental health. Cause I was just like, if that understanding that self-awareness, like you said, could make such an impact. Imagine what else I could do. <laughs> I know. I know the self-awareness is key. Cause I think so. And this is one of the problems with like mental health stigma and not talking about mental health is like all of us are struggling. <laughs> I mean, I know I've made that overgeneralization, but unless we talk about it, we don't realize like what we're experiencing is a struggle. We're like, oh, this is just who I am. And then you talk to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, like well, my anxiety. And you're like, is that what it is? What? Or like, like, oh, I ha- like, I just can't get out of bed and I've just kind of feel empty. And somebody's like, mm, have you thought about depression? Wait, is that what that is? Like, but we don't talk about it. So people just kind of go through life, just going through life. Alone, almost <laughs> essentially like alone. Even if you do have people in your life, you feel alone, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I think another reason why people kind of struggle with talking about their mental health, and I'm curious what your perspective is on this. I think people struggle with a coming off negative, Right. Mm-hmm. So they're like, well, I, whether it be on social media, especially social media, because, you know, everyone wants to have quote perfect lives, but even sometimes I've noticed in like friendships or relationships, it's like someone will finally tell you what they're feeling and what's going on in their life. And their first thought is, I'm so sorry. That was heavy. That was a lot. Like mm-hmm. what does, first of all, what does someone do to handle almost like that guilt of their feelings? But two, is there like a fine line and a boundary with that? Because of course, you also don't want to be the friend who's showing up to friendships to always say what they don't like about their life. You know, like the, I yeah. just I think there's such a a harsh line there where people feel like either a I shouldn't talk at all, or b now I now that I am talking, I want to dump it all. Like I finally mm-hmm. am getting to talk. Yeah. So I would say the first thing is like recognize that you are not alone in your feelings. So you might not be going through the same exact thing as your best friend is, but I'm sure your best friend also has struggles that maybe they're not talking about. Um, And I think another thing kind of, kind of overcoming that guilt aspect is ask permission. And that sounds weird, but I like, I was thinking about this a couple months ago and I was like, I can tell I'm friends with so many therapists because before we like share something heavy, we'll ask permission, like, Hey, I need to share something. Do you have space to hold it for me? Or like, I need to say something deep. Are you in a place that you can listen? 
And then if they say yes, okay, the guilt should be not there because you asked permission and the person accepted it. If they said, actually, I'm not in a good space, as hard as it is to not be offended by things, like recognize, okay, they set that boundary around us. This is not a good time. And I know for me personally, that has helped me not feel like I'm just like dumping on somebody like, hey, do you have the space for this? Um, But I think also just that, you know, awareness that you are not alone. So I know I mentioned like, I'm really passionate about self-compassion. So um, there's three aspects of self-compassion is one, one is common humanity. And that's this whole idea that suffering is part of being human. So we all suffer. And when we feel like we're alone, we tend to isolate ourselves and things like that. But the reality is we're never truly alone. Even if somebody close to you is not going through the same exact thing as you, they have gone through something. We've all gone through something, even the people with the most quote unquote perfect lives. And I know you mentioned social media go through something. And I think going back to um, kind of, they don't want to be viewed as negative. I think a lot of that comes from social media as well, because everybody puts out their highlight reel. And so if you see somebody crying, is it like, it's like, well, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be attention seeking. I don't want to be this. So then you don't post it. But the reality is a lot of us are probably crying like in our beds, in the bathroom, in a glass of wine (laughs) every day. Just kidding. (laughs) No, I remember um, going through this very harsh like conflict within myself where because I'm a wedding photographer, I felt the need to on social media, even Facebook, even like my personal Instagram, whatever it was to have this brand of I'm always happy and I'm always positive because I associated myself with. I am a wedding wedding photographer versus like, I am a human. So it was like, Mm -hmm. no one's going to want a photographer who has is struggling with her mental health. They don't want someone who has anxiety. Weddings have a lot of anxiety attached. And I was like, I would put out this just persona that was not me at all, Mm -hmm. at all. And, and then finally one day I was just like, I'm going to be authentic because the the people I want to work with will be understanding that I'm human. Exactly. (laughs) It wasn't this like, you know, I'm this big ball of negativity. I'm a rain cloud on your feed. It was just authentic. I'm normal. I'm human. Like mm-hmm. this is what's going on. Oh, exactly. And that's the thing. We're all human. I mean, unless we're interacting with animals, like we are interacting with other humans. And so like, yes, there are bounds. Like you have to be professional. Like I have to be professional at work. Like I said earlier, when you asked about like, is there a line on social media? Like I can share a lot more on social media that I, than I would in a therapy room because the therapy room is not about me. That's why I have my own therapist (laughs) so I can (laughs) be the center of attention in the therapy room. But it's, we're all human. We all go through things. And at the end of the day, like we all have bad days. We all make mistakes. But if you are professional within your profession and can show that authenticity, people are going to be attracted to you a lot more because you're not on one extreme or the other. You're not like just professional stoic all the time. And you're not a big bundle of whatever (laughs) it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, yeah, if you just, and also what do they say? Attract and repel, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll attract the people that align with you and understand you. And then if they don't, that's okay. Goodbye. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, I know like so many people, like a a buzzword I see on social media a lot is like people pleasing and like people want everybody to like them and things like that. And working with teens, like I hear this a lot, like, I just want everybody like me. And I'm like, do you like everyone? Well, no. Okay. Then there, why do you expect everybody to like you? And you're just going to exhaust and drain yourself. If you're just trying to like going back to what you just shared a couple of moments ago about like put off this persona, you're going to attract people that are attracted to that persona and they might not be a good fit for you. And even a social media side, even in real life. (laughs) Exactly. Attract the wrong friends, girlfriend. I hate to break it to you. Exactly. Partners. Exactly. And now you've like put on this. And I I talk about this with my teens a lot. Like there's one that's coming to mind in particular that kind of figure out what she had to do to fit in with the popular. Actually, now think about it like a couple 
of my teens, popular kids. And they kind of just went, and now they're like getting towards the end of high school. And they're like, I don't like any of my friends. I have nothing in common with them, but they tried so hard to fit in this box. And I think a lot of us do that even as adults, like we try to put on this persona. And then if you take a step back and you're just like, am I even happy? Do I even like these people? Wait a minute. What am I doing (laughs) with my life? Exactly. Exactly. And wrapping it back to mental health, that's just going to drain you. If you're surrounded by people that either you have to pretend to be somebody else, that's exhausting within itself, or that you don't actually enjoy, that's not going to benefit your mental health by any means. So I want to back it up a notch. When you brought up Mm self-compassion, I feel like self-compassion is so hard. And so many people (laughs) tell me that. I tell people that like we all are so hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think even a moment ago, I said, you know, people even feel guilty for feeling bad, right? Mm-hmm. And guilt is another, I feel like, emotion that goes hand in hand with self-compassion, where it's like you're not compassionate for yourself. Mm-hmm. You guilt. And why are we so freaking hard on ourselves? <laughs> We're so <laughs> mean, our inner mean human in our brain is a bully. Oh, it it is. I tell people all the time, we are harder on ourselves than we would be anybody else. Like it's it's awful. Like the things, if we all wrote down the things we say to ourselves throughout the day and like put them on a piece of paper and asked ourselves if we would ever say that to other people, the answer would be no, unless you're just like a mean person. No (laughs) friends. If I talk to people the way I talk to myself. Exactly. A loner. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think all of us would because we're so mean to ourselves and there is some evidence. I'm a research nerd, but like there is some evidence to show like our brain is wired to like, look at the negative Mm -hmm. things. Um, But I think a lot of times we just like jump to the worst version of ourselves. So like we make a mistake and we call ourselves a failure where with other humans around us, they make a mistake and we're like, oh, it's okay. Um, And that's why self-compassion is so important because it teaches us to be kind to ourselves, which seems like such an easy task in like theory, but it is so difficult and it takes so much practice. Um, And so self-compassion has the self-kindness component, the common humanity component I talked about earlier, and then the mindful awareness. And I think a lot of unlearning how we talk to ourselves is being mindful of how we talk to ourselves in the first place. Cause I think a lot of us do it. So second nature, we don't even realize like the horrible things. Like you said, if someone wrote it down, they would probably be appalled. Yeah. Well, and a lot of self-compassion work at first people can't do. So you actually externalize it. So you say like, how would you respond to a friend in this situation? Or how would you respond to your mom or your child or whoever it is? Because it's so hard for us to say positive things about ourselves. Um, On that note, I also think part of that, especially for women, is society as well, because we are told if we speak too highly of ourselves, we're like cocky or the B word um, or self-absorbed or things like that. So then we don't. Do you think that this lack of self-compassion and just all of that, whatever, you know, we'll lump all yeah. of that, what we just discussed. Um, do you think that that has a big impact on eating disorders, body image, or is eating disorders more of a psychological, almost kind of like depression where it's a chemical type imbalance or so self-compassion work is used in eating disorder treatment. Um, so eating disorders are often about control. So a lot of people think it's about food. It's not, it's about control. And we do see chemical imbalances in the brains of eating disorders, individuals, but that's often because they're, if it's a restrictive eating disorder, they're malnourished. And so they, their brain does not, um, make <laughs> the the neurotransmitters needed. And I say restrictive eating disorders because there are also, so when I say restrictive eating disorders, I mean like anorexia, bulimia nervosa, 
orthorexia, which is like an obsession with healthy eating and exercise. Um, because then there's also like binge eating disorder, which is actually the most common eating disorder, but people don't realize that. Um, but self-compassion work is huge in eating disorder treatments because you have to be kind to yourself and your body and give yourself grace and recognize you're not alone and speak kindly to yourself. Because if you think of, and I mostly work with restrictive eating disorders. So even though it's about control, it morphs into like fear of food, body image concerns. So going back to that negative self-talk, if you are only talking negatively to yourself about how you look, your body, your worth is based on your weight, all that kind of stuff. That's a lot of undoing. You have to say that process has to be lengthy. Oh, it is. And I mean, eating disorder treatment, just like anxiety treatment, depression, like therapy looks different for everyone. Like I I hate when people are like, how long does therapy take? And it's like, it could take three sessions. It could take 30 years. (laughs) It really just depends. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no treatment for eating disorders is really intense. It often um, requires a higher level of care. So what I mean by that is more than outpatient therapy. So you have like medical inpatient level, you have residential treatment where you're living somewhere, um, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient are more intense than regular outpatient. Um, yeah. And it can take a long time and, you know, there's different camps of people. Some people are in the camp. You can fully recover. Some are like, you're always in recovery, kind of like the model of like substance abuse, mm-hmm. um, and treatment can be, if you catch it early six months, a year, it can be lifelong. It just really depends on where individuals are. And you deal with children. So you could probably you're like, let me get you while you're young. Mm-hmm. By the time you're an adult. <laughs> well, honestly, that's one reason I gravitated towards children. I, I joke. I don't like adults. And then I was like, wait, kids have like parents and guardians. <laughs> this didn't work out. Um, But yeah, I do feel like in many ways, and this is just my personal belief. This is nothing like, obviously I'm an adult, you're an adult. Um, I feel like I can make more of an impact Mm -hmm. with kids because you are intervening earlier, especially if they have supportive adults in their life. If they don't, that makes it challenging, but then you can be the supportive adult in their life. But honestly, that was one of the main reasons I wanted to work with kids and especially teens because teens are... I love working with teens. They're in that age that like they hate the world and adults are dumb, but then they'll come into therapy and be like, Oh, did you listen to the new blah, blah, blah album? Or can I show you this? And I'm like, yes, I've made it. I'm so cool. <laughs> I know my favorite is like, do you know, like when they'll ask me like different social medias, like, do you know what Instagram is? Oh my mm-hmm. Or do you know what TikTok is? And I'm like, yeah, I probably have more followers than you. No, I don't say that. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Feel like I have such a soft spot for kids. Ah, That would be very hard to have boundaries. I'd be like, just come live with me. I'll adopt you. (laughs) Oh, and and it is for you. It and it is hard, and especially like working medical inpatient too, and like working with sick kids that adds a whole nother layer. Cause I mean, I have patients die not, and I don't want to say frequently more frequently than like just a traditional outpatient therapist would have. Um, and that's hard or where you see kids in just like really bad home situations. And you're like, I just want to bring you home, but like I can't because I'm your psychologist and that's unethical. Um, and like just worrying about them and things like that. And then like also the balance of like, trying not to sound like their parent when they do something (laughs) that you're like, you know, (laughs) that wasn't the best choice and let's talk about it. Yeah. Like I'm not trying to mother you, but I'm also trying to make sure that you understand the consequences (laughs) of your decisions. (laughs) Exactly. I know your frontal lobe is not fully developed yet. <laughs> yeah, just bring that into it, it. It makes it much less emotional. <laughs> yes. How did you, because you mentioned you have anxiety, how did you stop your thoughts at night? I would just, how do you not bring home work with you and just maintain your own anxiety, just good coping mechanisms? So it, it I, it's something you have to learn in yeah. graduate school. I remember like having a breakdown one day. Um, 
over a client after seeing her and like, I just like went to like an older person in my program and I was like, I can't do this. Like, I'm worried about her. Like, I want to take her home, but I can't. And she was like, we need to learn how to not take your work home with you. And like, you do, like you definitely do, but a lot of boundary setting. So like turning off my computer once I leave or my laptop, once I leave work, turning off my work phone, not checking my phone, my email, those kinds of things, um, setting clear boundaries at the outset, like about when I will respond to things uh, and working with teens. Like a lot of teens do have my work cell phone number just because we were in a pandemic and like yeah. <laughs> we're doing telehealth and this and this and this, um, but setting boundaries around that um, and talking with other therapists, relying on supervisors, colleagues, things like that. Um, but really it takes a lot of practice. And, but there are definitely some days like over Christmas, I had a patient in the hospital that was really, really sick. And I told the doc, I was gone for a few days and I told the doctors, the medical doctors, I was like, if anything happens, I need to know, like, I don't care if it is Christmas day. I am with my family. I need to know. Luckily, the patient pulled through and nothing bad happened, but like, there are times that like that whole time I was like, Oh my gosh, what is happening? What is happening? Um, but you soon realize like, if you constantly take your work home with you, you're just going to be burnt out. I mean, it, like, you literally cannot pour from an empty cup. <laughs> exactly. No, you, you can't you help can't. anyone. <laughs> you can't. And if I am sitting, if I get home and I'm thinking about all my patients during the day and I'm anxious and whatever, that's going to impact my relationship with my husband, my relationship with my dog, like all of those things. Snowballs. Yeah. And it's exhausting. And as much as I love mental health and I'm passionate and that's all I've been talking about, like I am a person outside of it. <laughs> and so like when I get home at night, I like to spend time with my family. I like to watch my TV shows that have nothing to do with mental health, eat dinner, like those kind of things. I loved that in your little document of where you were describing yourself, you didn't just say like, I'm a psychologist and therapist. You're like, I'm a mom, I'm a wife. Like you are so much more than just that label and that title. Yeah. And I think that goes to kind of this whole idea about like therapists being human. I mean, things like even we take vacations and I know that's hard for so many like individuals because, you know, especially if you're seeing your therapist weekly, having to skip a week or two. Um, and I used to feel so guilty, so guilty. So I wouldn't take breaks and then I would just burn out. And now I'm like, no, wait, like everybody else takes their vacation. Why don't I like, I'm, I'm a human. How I have handle work guilt. I think that's another thing. This, I keep coming back to this guilt word. I don't know. If, that was not on our list of things, but for some reason it keeps standing out to me, maybe because it goes, like I was saying with self-compassion, yeah. but that's another thing I think a lot of people have guilt about is work guilt or mom guilt. Just guilt as a, <laughs> as a whole takes up so much of our energy. Oh, it definitely does. And so people talk about guilt and shame a lot. So like guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad is how you like distinguish the two. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work guilt. Um, I experience it a lot. Like if I feel like I can't get everything done in a day and then at the same time, I have to remind myself like one, I am more than my job Two, like I'm salaried. So I only get paid for 40 hours. <laughs> Girl, I mean, I never really work 40 hours, but like, I mean, if we're talking broadly speaking for like people experiencing work guilt, like, do you, are you putting more effort in than you, you are paid for? And it's not always about getting paid. And like, I know I've, I've listened to episodes of yours and talking about like doing something that you're passionate about. So it doesn't feel like a job and things like that. And that is a real thing. And at the same time we have to make a living. So are you burning yourself out? Can this be done the next day? Like, and also I think, down. yeah, it, 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 down. exactly. Like, and I think too, like if you tried your hardest throughout the day, like 
and I know you're a photographer. So like if you say told the bride you were going to get the pictures on whatever day and then life happens, you know, the, I don't know, I don't know if you have pets or whatever, something happened with the pet, you get sick, uh, the power goes out and you can't edit the, like, there you go. Yeah. Life happens. And we can either choose to feel guilty that we didn't meet a deadline or give ourselves compassion. Now we're going back to the self-compassion. There and you're like, <laughs> Full circle. I, I am a human. Life happens. I tried my best. Things are out of my control. And going back to the idea of anxiety, and this works with guilt too, is what is within my control mm. and what is not. I can only really focus on the things I can control. So if at work, you know what? I did everything I could today and I still have X to do tomorrow and that's okay because I tried. Or it could be like, oh, now looking back, I spent an hour scrolling on social media. Tomorrow lets me, let's not do that and see how I feel. Um, But I mean, guilt takes so much from us and exhausts us. And I think the most simple thing to ask is, is this something I should feel guilty about? Did I actually do something bad or wrong? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't feel guilty about it. (laughs) Love yourself a little. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and then that kind of goes right back to that voice in the head that we were talking about and just making it a kinder voice, which exactly she said is a work in progress. It's just, (laughs) oh, it is. And one thing like I have found is that, you know, a lot of times when we talk about like our inner critic and no talk positively, like it's very hard to talk positively. If you've been talking negatively to yourself, like your whole life, um, it's just inherently in you. You just do it. Yeah. But what about talking neutrally to yourself? Like if I don't know, I don't know, you, you make a mistake on something and your inner critic is like, you are such an idiot. You are such a failure. And you can't come up with the positive language, then just objectively say what happened. Oh, I made a mistake. I typed the person's name wrong. Okay. That that's what it is. It doesn't say anything about me as a human. It's just a neutral statement stating the fact, and that can get you closer to then eventually talking positive to yourself. I think one thing I've always struggled with was being logical and like neutral versus disassociating. Because <laughs> like, because it was like I'm such an extreme person that's like, if I'm feeling, oh my gosh, I am feeling it all. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, oh, I think I'm feeling this too deeply and negatively. Now it's consuming my brain, and I'm being mean to myself. I'm not going to feel anything. <laughs> and so I've had to really <laughs> work on like not disassociating, but just being like. Sure, you made a mistake. People do that. Move on. Like, quit dwelling on it. You know, because exactly. like, I'll do one or the other, and then I'm like, it's also not healthy to suppress everything. <laughs> so, going back to self compassion, um, <laughs> mindful awareness, um, one of the pillars of self compassion, teaches you to like sit with your emotions. We don't what they what we call in self compassion over identify with them. So that's kind of that like sit in and I'm just like wallowing in my sorrow and ruminating over the things. And then we don't suppress them. So we actually just like, okay, this is anxiety. For me, anxiety feels like my heart racing, my stomach's a little queasy. I'm trembling. So it's very like, how am I feeling in my body? Now I'm not telling myself I'm a bad person for having anxiety. I'm not telling myself I shouldn't feel this way. I'm not wallowing in my anxiety. I'm not letting it spiral out of control, but I'm also not completely suppressing and ignoring it. And that's uncomfortable too. But once you start practicing it, you realize that like those uncomfortable emotions aren't nearly as scary as we think they are. We just don't like to feel hard things. You want to like fix it. You're like, oh, I'm anxious about this. I need to fix it right now, which control. Yes. (laughs) Everything is just tied together. But you're like, I got to fix it. And sometimes it's like, you cannot fix it. Just sit with it. And that that goes back to like, what is in my control? Yeah. Like you can't fix. And the thing is like, we all have emotions. You cannot stop. I mean, you can suppress an emotion, but to suppress it, you had to have it in the first place. So like. Emotions are a natural human 
experience. We all have them. (laughs) They're they're not good or bad. Like I use this example all the time and I talk about anxiety all the time, but with my patients, like anxiety in many situations is actually very adaptive. Like if a bear is chasing you, you want your body to tell you you're anxious. So you will run. I don't actually know if that's what you're supposed to do. So nobody take that advice, (laughs) but like, disclaimer. (laughs) so, and like, you know, sadness is an adaptive emotion. If you're grieving, if you're going through something difficult, they all emotions can be healthy is what we do with those emotions. That's what's important. And I think, yeah, a lot of times we just weren't nourished enough to understand our emotions. So here we are as adults Mm -hmm. learning it. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Like I, especially working with kids, I see this and I don't work with tiny, tiny kids as much as I used to, but like And I reflect on my childhood or like people I know, like we always ask kids, like, how was your day? We talk about happy times. Oh, this is exciting. A kid starts like crying or something. We like tell them, oh, don't cry. Oh, it's okay. And it's actually because we as the adults are uncomfortable because they're showing emotions. And then internally we learn, oh, it's not good to cry. It's not good to feel this way. And I'm not blaming. It's nobody's fault. I think we all do it. But like, if we start from an early age, teaching kids like emotional language, and it's okay to express emotions, I think we'll be more adaptive adults, unlike our generation that is now like unpacking 30 years of. I seriously used to pride myself on the fact that I was an optimist. (laughs) And people, I remember being even in like elementary school and I'd walk down the hall and people would be like, you're always smiling. You're always happy. And And then high school, you're always happy. And I like found that as my, that defined me. Well, mm, here's the thing. There's a lot going on behind closed doors. And I actually grew up with a ton of trauma. And Mm -hmm. I was just suppressing everything because my only choice was to quote, be happy. Mm -hmm. And because I was so scared of feeling bad. And then I finally hit this point in adulthood where I was like, "Uh uh-oh. I think I have to start feeling things in a healthy way because I don't want to be the pretend happy girl anymore. I'm sick of putting on the smiling face down the hallway. Exactly. At the end, I would go home and cry all night. You know, it was just a very different people were seeing this and I was this. And, mm-hmm. and I remember that hit me like, I don't know, like bricks. It was like, I, I love that you tried to see the sunshine in life, but you also were not seeing anything but sunshine. <laughs> no, exactly. And like you just said, it hit you like a ton of bricks. And that's usually what happens when we suppress emotions, trauma, whatever it is. I like to use a like soda bottle analogy. If every time we have a uncomfortable emotion, it's a drop of soda in the, the bottle and we never pour the bottle out. We never pour ourselves as a drink which would be like using a healthy coping skill, eventually it's going to overflow and it's going to explode because it's soda. And that's when we're unpacking years of all of these things and we're trying to piece it back together. And that's uncomfortable too. Like when it hits you like a ton of bricks, you're like, what just happened? But if we can learn along the way, like, oh, I should probably talk to somebody about this if it's accessible to you. Rather than waiting, and I know listening to your podcast, you talk about like rock bottom a lot. Like you don't have to hit rock bottom to go yeah. to therapy. Yeah. Like yeah. it's actually a lot better if you're like, hmm, something's off. I think I could use some extra support to go then than at rock bottom. Just go. Just go. Yeah, just go. <laughs> just like, go. <laughs> and like I say all the time, everybody could benefit from therapy. I know in our country it is a privilege, it's unfortunately, and it's not accessible to everyone. However, if it is accessible to you, I encourage people to go because we can all benefit. Like we all need a little help sometimes. Now, if someone, let's say they're, they're not quite there at that therapy journey, they, um, whether it be financial, mentally ready, whatever it is, what would you say are some like baby steps that they could do to even find, um, I don't know, just mental health help through the world, even if they have not talked to a therapist yet? So, okay. That's a great question. I love that. So if you are looking for like true mental health, like help, but maybe you don't want to talk to like a therapist or you're not ready to take that step. You want to do it on your own. I mean, there are a lot of like self-help books Mm -hmm. um, out there and like 
on social media, there are a lot of good licensed professionals putting out content. Um, And I'm not like just saying like, oh, like myself, but like if they are a licensed mental health professional, they will say it in their like Instagram bio or YouTube channel. It will be clear. Podcasts are another great resource. Um, I listen to a lot of mental health podcasts. I listen to other podcasts as well, but a lot of mental health podcasts. And I learn stuff even as a psychologist. Um, Things like journaling, looking up meditations, mindfulness practice. I know we've already talked about grounding techniques, deep breathing techniques. Those are all things that you can do on your own. Um, You can Google and look up, you know, um, coping skills for anxiety. One thing I tell everybody, a coping skill is anything that reduces your stress and makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. So if you are listening to this and you're like, I don't even know if I want to like look up self-help, blah, blah, blah. The most basic thing you can do is what are the things that bring you joy? What are the things that make you happy that are adaptive? And I always say that because there are maladaptive coping skills too, like alcohol, drugs, things like that. But you know, if you like going for walks in nature, if you like drawing, if you like listening to music, do those things frequently when you're feeling down, but also when you're feeling good, those are all coping skills and start there because that's, and basic self-care things like making sure you're eating, taking a shower, (laughs) um, brushing your teeth. All of those things are beneficial for your mental health as well. Now making sure you shower is not necessarily going to cure major depressive disorder, but it's going to make you feel better. So maybe then now that you're showered, you're going to get up and get dressed and decide to get out of the house. Right. And then in turn, that might make you more motivated to do other things. One step at a time. (laughs) Exactly. I always tell people in the passion potential group to celebrate their small joys. And I love it. Exact reason. Um, like riding my bike became one of my coping skills it, mm-hmm. and not even an athletic bike. It was just a little beach cruiser that would ride around the block with headphones in. And I would yeah. just do zoom, zoom, zoom around my block. And it actually became a, a coping skill because I was so stressed and down at that time that it just allowed me to feel my feelings and think about my thoughts without spiraling into a literal anxiety attack. No, I mean, <laughs> and that's joys. great. Like it, one thing for me is I love going on walks. And so every Saturday I take my daughter in her stroller on a walk and like, it has done wonders for my mental health, just getting out of the house for like 30 to 45 minutes. I, I usually have like a podcast I'm listening to or some music, but I'm not like checking my phone, not checking social media and just out in nature. Ooh. And And take a break from social media. Yes. Like spend an hour, even half hour a day put the phone away. That has helped my mental health drastically. Oh, it, it is amazing how much taking a break from social media or just from your phone in Mm -hmm. general does for you. There are times like our bedrooms upstairs, our main living floor is downstairs. I'll just leave my phone upstairs in our bedroom and spend time downstairs away. So I'm not, cause we all are checking our phones and we could talk about social media and the impact forever, but (laughs) Yeah. Take a break from it. Be in the present moment. I have to ask the like famous question, uh, which I know our, our episode was mostly about mental health. I always ask everybody, you are obviously passionate about helping people, mental health therapy. What does someone do if they don't have a passion? (laughs) I get everybody with this one and they always go, Ooh, and I've listened to your podcast too. So I guess I should have met. I think a lot of it is trial and error because kind of going back to what I just said a few minutes ago, like what brings you joy? So there are going to be things in life that you like, even if it doesn't bring you joy, that you like, that you tolerate and trial and error, um, try new things. Or even if you want to like jump to the extreme, step out of your comfort zone and try something like totally random and see if you love it. And if you don't, at least you tried it yeah. and you know. Um, but I think if somebody says they don't have a passion, it's not that they don't have it. They just haven't found it yet. And they just need to 
try out a bunch of different things. And one day I think it will just click because I hearing different people's stories and finding their passion, like even me, like, okay, yes, I was in school to become a psychologist and all that kind of stuff. But like, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And it just kind of comes and falls in your lap. So trial and error. And rather than thinking, I don't have a passion, change the language to, I just haven't found my passion yet. I love that. Yeah. Because every time someone tells me they don't have a passion, I'm like, you do. You just got to find it. I promise Mm -hmm. you got it in there. Just got to find it. Okay. I love that. Well, Jess, thank you so much. This is just wonderful. I feel like I could talk with you all day. I just, we could like rant about mental, every, like we only got into like the main stuff. Now get me <laughs> those little subcategories, like specific ones. Oh girl. Um, but why don't you go ahead and let everyone know where to find you? So my podcast is called Psych Talk. It is on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. And then on social media, on Instagram and TikTok, my handle is Jessica Lee, PhD. Lee is L-E-I-G-H. Okay. And then I'll be sure to tag that in the show notes as well. So that people can easily find it because spelling and whatnot. (laughs) Okay. Well, Jess, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great.